Good evening, good morning, everybody. My name is Raven. I'm an alcoholic. And I have not had, I don't know if y'all do this in California or not. We do in Texas. They don't do it up in the Northwest. But I have not had a drink or a mood altering chemical since July the 20th of 1971. And I uh, used to say I was grateful for that, but my sponsor said until he saw some evidence, he'd rather I just said thankful. So I, I don't say grateful anymore. But it is good to be here. I was listening to uh, Peggy. Yeah, she said, it's scary looking out here seeing all you people. You know what would be more scary is to come here all the way from Texas and look out here and there wouldn't be any people. <laughs> My wife, for, for 18 years, has been expecting that to happen. We have to get here. The reason we were so early this morning is I have to come and let Faye count the parking lot. Because she still believes that one of these days we're going to go to one of these things and there'll be nobody there. You know? But that's all right. I'd like to take just a second, because I'll forget this if I don't. I'd like to introduce my wife, Faye. Faye, would you stand and let everybody see how lucky I am? It seems to be the weekend for comparing anniversaries and so forth, so Faye and I have been married 36 years. We're the, uh, we're the only couple in our circle of friends who are still with the original partners we started out with, so we have some distinction. In 36 years of marriage, I've won one argument, and that is that I'm smarter than she is. I mean, I'm just definitely smarter than she is. <laughs> Anytime she wants to argue about that, I just say, well, look at who you married. I wouldn't have married somebody like she did, and if I had, I wouldn't have stayed with them. I tell you that. <laughs> anyway, it is good to be back in the Antelope Valley. This is not my first trip here. It is my first trip here sober. Uh, my last time here was in 1956. It has changed a little bit. Uh, seems to be the same crowd that I knew when I was here before, but you look a little different. You smell better. Okay. A uh, big deal for us in those days, I was over in Mojave, and we would go to Roseman and buy a gallon of Muscatel and then tour Lancaster. That was a big weekend for us. So, so you can see that my alcoholism didn't lend a whole lot to my, my activities. It just sort of moved around. But I am glad to be here. I want to thank Ron and the committee for affording us the opportunity to come back. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a tremendous weekend. We... Uh, Faye and I got out yesterday and rode around a little bit, and, uh, and uh, we just, it gives, you know, it's just a nice opportunity to be in a different part of the country. So, as I've already said, I am an alcoholic. Somebody asked me in Oklahoma not too long ago, said, are you an ANDA? And I didn't know what an ANDA was. <laughs> they said, are you one of those people who get up behind the podium and say, I'm an alcoholic and an addict? Well, no, I'm not. I am an alcoholic who did an awful lot of drugs. <laughs> That's all I can tell you, you know. But my problem is alcoholism. I suffer from a disease called alcoholism. Now, I would take anything that would make me feel single and see double. It really didn't make a damn bit of difference what you call it. And, you know, the, the, uh, somebody asked me one time, said, what's your drug of choice? I said, what you got? You know, it really didn't make any difference. You know, I've been asked often if I was ever a social drinker. I was if you had whiskey, you know. I could be the most social person you ever had. But my basic problem is I am an alcoholic. And I also am a, a preacher. 
Well, it's Sunday morning. I mean, you have to get something. I am a Baptist preacher. <laughs> okay. I am a Southern Baptist preacher. Oh, yeah, okay. And I don't apologize for that. I'm no more ashamed of being a Baptist preacher than I am being an alcoholic. They're both incurable. You have to learn to live with them. Uh, so I suppose in addition to being an alcoholic, I'm a recovering Southern Baptist. Uh, and also, I might as well go ahead and give you the bottom line. I'm also a psychotherapist, and I'm in private. <laughs> yeah. So I'm everything that you like to sit around meetings and talk about and criticize. And I do have, I am contractually obligated to a uh, treatment facility. Um, and I like what you said last night, Jack. You know, we, we deal with uh, alcoholism. AA deals with living, you know. So, uh, and I agree wholeheartedly with you. Uh, back in the days when I first came in, and I, I, got, I got to the point where I say that all the time, you know. I mean, geez, I had become one of those things I used to hate so bad. I'm a bleeding deacon. You know? you know, I'm one of those people that sits in the back of the room at the meeting and goes, hmm, hmm, <laughs> you know. And then I sit and drink coffee with my, my friends and decide which one of you are going to make it. We've never been right yet. You know, when the newcomers come in, it was, mm-hmm, yeah, look at that one. Now, that one ain't ready, you know. <laughs> and I remember back in the old days, Jack, and I know, God, I'm saying that to you, that, uh, yeah, I was told, you know, if you still had a watch, you wasn't ready. You remember? You know? Then they used to say 50% of you aren't going to make it the first time, you know. And I began to look around to see who to take with me, you know. Because... <laughs> God, I love that list you had. I just got to have a copy of that. I want to put it on the wall of my office because I was all of those things, you know. But some of people used to come by and tell me, so let's go get drunk and be somebody. I said, why limit yourself? Let's get drunk and be everybody, you know. <laughs> so, you know, as, as a psychotherapist, I, my, my job is basically to observe people and uh, just, you know, basically to listen, you know. I think one of the best days I ever had in my office was a lady came in one day. She said, uh, she came in. I never ask people how they feel because I don't care and they're going to lie anyway. So they just come in and I say, oh, you know, have a seat. And, uh, and then I kind of work on the deal of the day, you know. <laughs> because when you work with people who have emotional problems, there's always a deal of the day. I mean, it really doesn't matter what they originally came for. You know, I mean, if they came to marital problems, you know, and they've just lost their grandmother, their grandfather, and their oldest child has been put in prison, they ain't want to talk about their marriage when they get there that day. It's the deal of the day. You know? So this lady came in, and I sat down, and she started talking. She talked 55 minutes, and I stopped. I said, same time next week, and she said yes, and I said, okay, see you next week, and she left. About three hours later, she, I, I came out of the office, and there was a message with the reception. She said she wanted me to call right away. It was urgent. So I called her and she said, I just want you to know that the advice you gave me today was the best you have ever given me. And I never said anything. Yeah. I deal with people all the time that are a whole lot crazier than we are and have no idea why. <laughs> I believe we are the most fortunate people on the face of the earth because we know what our problem is. We have found a solution to the problem. And God loves us more than he loves other people. It's just that simple. God loves alcoholics and recovering people, and that's a new term that came up. You know, I didn't know I was recovering until I'd been in broken 12 years. You know, but the only thing I knew for the first 12 years was I just didn't drink anymore. And then one day somebody came in and said, hey, 
we're recovering. I said, really? Yes, from what? From alcoholism. I said, really? Do we still have it? Yeah. Are we going to get over it? No. That's why they call us recovering. I said, well, that's neat. Are we past the insanity phase yet? And they said, in your case, probably not. So I believe wholeheartedly that God loves us more than he loves everybody else. So people always look at me kind of funny when I say that. You know? and, and I'll just substantiate that for you real quick. You know, we suffer from a condition much more serious than alcoholism. We suffer from a condition known as morism. You know, our basic problem is we want more of everything than anybody else in the whole world. I never wanted one of anything in my whole life. Well, God knows how we are. God understands that. He gave the whole world ten commandments. He gave us twelve steps. Because he knew if we didn't get more than everybody else, we wouldn't play anyway. You know, so, so God understands how we are. He loves us. And so I sit there with these people all day, every day, you know, and sometimes I just want to tell them, why don't y'all go get drunk? You know? Go get drunk and stay drunk for 10 or 12 years and come back and I'll introduce you to some people that can help you, you know. I don't say that, of course. I mean, Blue Cross doesn't pay for it, so I wouldn't do that. But, but you know, it, it amazes me today that anybody ever gets that. Hey, I don't know how you can live in the world today and ever find your way to the doors of Alcoholics Anonymous. This is the craziest world that I have ever seen. The other day, I was in a mall with Faye shopping. The way we shop is I sit down in the middle of the mall and wait for her to come by and get loads of money. And so I'm sitting in the center of the mall, and this kid and his girlfriend comes walking by, and, and he's got a, a punk rock haircut. Now, I mean, I'm not knocking this. I'm just telling you where he had. It was spiked out to about here, and it was blue on one side and orange on the other. And they stopped in front of where I was sitting, and, and he picked up a pair of sunglasses and he turned around and he said, How do these look? And she said, Take those off, they make you look stupid. <laughs> so I kind of wonder about this work. But, that same mall has a has a sign in the in the window of one of the stores that says, "Ears pierced while you wait." I went in and told them I was in a big hurry. I didn't have time to wait. Could I leave my ears and come back? And they didn't have a sense of humor. They called the security guard. So I wonder how any of us ever get here. I was in church last Sunday morning. A lady passed by right in front of where I was sitting. Had three little kids with her. And she stopped and said, Do y'all want a whipping? That's got to be the dumbest question anybody ever had. Can you imagine her reaction if one of those kids had looked up and said, Yeah, Mama, beat hell out of it. So I wonder, how do we ever get here, you know? Last month I was changing planes in Chicago. I was <laughs> I was sitting waiting on my flight, and I didn't realize I was sitting on a newspaper. A little guy walks up to me and he said, "Are you reading that paper?" <laughs> I stood up, turned the page, sat back down, and said, "Yes, I am." 
So you wonder, you know, how do we ever get here? You ever look at the front door of the post office? Every post office in this country has a sign on the front door that says, no dogs allowed except C&I dogs. Who the hell's supposed to read that? I never understood this, you know. So anyway, uh, you know, I decided after a couple of three years in AA that if I wanted to have any serenity or any sanity at all left, what I really needed to do was I needed to get back with those people, you know, in the church who have all the serenity and peace and what. I don't know. You ever go to church? I hope you all do sometime, you know. It's a good exercise, you know, it teaches you what... If you don't get anything outside of going to church, the very least you can get is you can get some gratitude for your AA meetings. You know, I mean, it always amazes me. I've been around here a long time, and I listen to people at discussion meetings, you know, and all this stuff, and they always have these criticisms of church. And you know what we criticize about church? The same darn thing that happens at AA, and we are totally tolerant. People can come into AA meetings and sit there and say the most outlandish things that you've ever heard, and we just sit there and listen, and we say, well, that's their sickness. They've got to get it out of their system. They really need a place so they can come and be comfortable. Go to church and let one person say something you disagree with, and all the Baptists are SOBs, and all the Catholics are crazy as hell, and the Jews are self-centered, and the Episcopalians are all half drunk, and the Presbyterians don't know what they're doing, and all of it's a mess. And they're doing exactly the same thing. They're just going down there trying to find a little peace of mind. <laughs> you know, They only give it an hour a week, and they don't get much out of it. But they're trying. You know? I remember the first time I went back to church after AA, and I told the pastor at the end of the service, I said, if you guys want to know something about love, you ought to come and go to an AA meeting, because they practice up there what y'all preach. I know he must have loved that. <laughs> but it was a basic fact. So anyway, I decided I'd go back to church. And so I did. And then I decided, uh, I didn't decide, I, I, I don't want to sound mystical or, or, or anything like this, but I just really felt like God had, had set aside a vocation for me. And so I went to the seminary and I prepared for the ministry because I wanted to help people. You know? And, and I really felt like that I needed, I needed to get a balance between my, my spiritual life and my AA life, and, and, and something was missing for me. I'm not saying it was for you, it was for me. And so I became a minister, and I began to pastor churches. Now I've got serenity. I mean, you know, really what I had was boredom, but I, you know, it was quiet. It was a whole lot quieter than what we had had. But I have to tell you something, I didn't find sanity. I had not been in the ministry very long until I went out to a little town in West Texas to preach a revival meeting. And they asked me to go visit some people in the community. They always do that. And so they sent me to visit three little old maids. Now, in the Baptist church, we don't say old maid anymore. It's single by choice. You've got to understand the new terminology. We don't have hymnals in the Baptist church anymore. And we tried to call them hernals, and that didn't work, so now we call them personals. Everybody pick up your personal and we're going to sing. It sounds kind of strange, and you'd be surprised what some people grab, but that's what we do. Anyway, 
so I'm out here visiting these three little ladies who are single by choice. They said. And they asked me if I wanted some coffee and cake, and I said, yeah. And they go off to fix the coffee and the cake, and while they were gone, I looked over, there was a bowl of peanuts sitting on the table, and I reached over and got a handful of peanuts, and I'm waiting. They still didn't come back, and I reached over and got another handful of peanuts, and before they came back, I ate the whole bowl. And they came back in, and they said, well, we see you found the peanuts. And I said, yes, ma'am, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to eat all of them. And they said, oh, we're glad you did. So since we had our teeth pulled, we can't do nothing to suck the chocolate off of them anyway. sitting there and we're drinking coffee and we're eating cake and I'm sitting there and I looked up and up on top of the piano was a glass of water with a condom floating in it. Now I'm sitting there and trying not to look at this. Have you ever noticed when there's something you don't want to look at no matter where you look, there it is? It's kind of like a preacher at the beach, you know, I mean it's... I almost got kicked out of the seminary on that one. <laughs> we had a young, I was an old man when I went to the seminary, according to, I mean, in, in comparison to the rest of the class. And one young preacher asked the professor one day, he says, what are you really supposed to do when you see a good-looking girl in a little bikini? And the preacher, and the teacher said, well, that's why God put a hinge in your neck right here. And I said, well, why did he make it turn both ways? And uh, they didn't like that much. Yeah. I was always getting in trouble in seminary because I'm kind of analytical. You know, being an alcoholic, you know, I just don't accept things at face value. you got to show me something, you know. I remember when we studied about Jesus turning the water into wine, you know. I said, hmm, sound like a problem to me. And the teacher said, what do you mean? I said, why didn't they just quit drinking when they ran out? I never understood that exactly. You know, normal people, when they run out, they just quit drinking. Folks like this now. <laughs> We panic, you know. But anyway, well, that's another story. So anyway, I'm sitting there, and I'm looking up at this glass of water with a condom floating in it, <laughs> trying not to look at it. And I finally asked one of these ladies, I said, what is that? And she said, we don't know. We found it in the park. And it said on the package, place on organ for prevention of disease. <laughs> And she says, we don't have an organ, so we put it on the piano. And she said, you know what? We haven't had a cold all winter. And that kind of reminds me of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Even when we have absolutely no concept of what we're doing, it still works. So having come out of that kind of world into your kind of world, let me simply say that I am here, that I came to the program of Alcoholics Anonymous on July the 19th, 1971, because I felt like that being highly motivated, well-educated, sensitive young person, I said to my wife, it would appear that we have some problems in our home. And she said, yes, I believe we do. 
And I said, do you think maybe I ought to become, you know, join Alcoholics Anonymous? And she said, that might help. And I said, well, I think I'll just go. And she said, I, I think that would be a good idea. So I did. And I joined the Irving group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and we fell madly in love, and the kids started making straight A's, and the mortgage was caught up instantly, and the grass began to grow, and all the crabgrass died. And uh, they elected me block captain, and I became president of the PTA, and the police would stop me on the street to ask how I was doing, and the judges would call and ask my advice. And we have been deliriously happy ever since. And if you believe that then let's stand and say the Lord's Prayer because you're too dumb to hear the rest of what i got to say. <laughs> the fact of the matter is I came to Alcoholics Anonymous on July the 19th, 1971 for the simple reason I didn't have anywhere else to go. If I had one more place, if I could have pulled one more scam, if I could have gotten somebody to believe one more lie, if I could have bummed one more dime, I believe I would have still been out there drinking. I believe in my heart that on July the 19th, 1971, I reached an emotional bottom. That I reached the end of a rope, and there was no way to go back, and there was nothing in front, and something had to be done. Actually, what happened is Faith came to me, and she said, The children and I have had a meeting, and we have asked you, and I said, How did I make that? And she said, We figured out it costs $500 a month more to keep you than you bring in. And we basically can't afford you any longer. And so I realized how desperate she had become, and I called the Irving Group of Alcoholics Anonymous. They have an electronic answering machine. I love that machine. You would call down there, and it says, You have reached the Irving Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and then the most beautiful words I ever heard, There's no one here at this time. And then I would break the connection, and I would confess to the machine, and I would go back, and she would feel better. She'd say, what did they say? And I'd say, they said, don't drink red wine for a while. It's upsetting your stomach and giving you a bad attitude. You need to drink white wine for a while. And Faye would believe that because she needed desperately to believe in something. She is not dumb. She is not stupid. She's well-educated. She just was grasping at something to believe in. You see, she is the end result of having lived in a household with a disease that she could not recognize. My wife's a registered nurse. But she didn't know the symptoms. She didn't recognize the disease. And as fast as the symptoms would become identifiable, they would change. There was no treatment. There was no cure. There was nothing but total chaos. And you can't live in total chaos without getting sick. And I will stand here today without hesitation and say to you that I believe the people who live in the house with people like us get a whole hell of a lot sicker than we ever do. For the simple reason they have no relief from their sickness. When you and I get into our sickness, we get drunk. We escape. If albeit but a few hours, we do get away from the pressure. Those people who live around us are stuck. You can, I don't, you know, say what you want to about Alanines. They are captives. They're slaves. They're caught. We, we imprison them. Sure they could leave. You believe that? i got some land in Florida I want to talk to you about. You know, they really can. And I, I love Alanines to death. We love them in Texas. You know, state of Texas has just developed a whole new insurance for Alanines called My Fault. Uh, 
I'm, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm not. <laughs> so anyway, I realized how sick Faye had become, and I realized how sick I had become sure I had. And I said, can I use your telephone? <laughs> and I didn't have one. And uh, see, Faye and I lived in a little tract home in Dallas. We had, we had jointly bought this house. We used my VA loan and her money. And uh, so we had, uh, we had sort of established this situation there, and I won't go into the details because I don't want to drag this out, but we, we had kind of developed a, a, a detente there, a peaceful coexistence. And uh, they just basically pretended I wasn't there until I became so obnoxious that, you know, they covered me with a tarp and they kept me out in the garage. And finally, they just pretended that nobody lived at our house. And they would come in. We were like cave dwellers. We would, they would come in in the afternoon. I'd already be there. You know, and, and, and the description of your father last night, you know, just made cold chills because I know my kids must have gone through that. You know, that, God, if he's 20 minutes late. You know, we play those games. You know, so, uh, I was listening um, to, to uh, Sally yesterday morning, and she was describing you know, their, their terms for us. You know, if you go to college, you get into what my grandson calls gradual school. <laughs> and, and, and Faye understood gradual school because she put me through a lot of gradual years of gradual school. Uh, but when you get there, you know, you really find out that we're pretty well identified. You know? the, the games that alcoholics and Alanons play are very identifiable. There's one called Niggy Sob, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's a psychological, N-I-Y-Y-S-O-B, son, for now I got you, you son of a bitch. You know, and, and the way you play that is that, uh, you know, she's got supper ready. I'm 30 minutes late. First thought, he's had a wreck. I'm an hour late. Second thought, he better have had a wreck. You know? Hour and a half late. Third thought, I know who he's with. <laughs> Two hours late. Fourth thought, I know what they're doing. Yeah. Two and a half hours late, fifth thought, I can see him doing it. And then I would come into the house in all my glory, and she'd be standing at the door, and do you know what the first thing she would say? You're drunk. What a revelation. I mean, I've spent next week's salary drinking muscatel wine with my friends down on the street, my good friends, worked all the money I had to get this way, and she tells me I'm drunk. And what do I say? I am not. I mean, I'm laying in the hall puking straight up, gasping for breath, saying, no, I'm not. And then we would shift into our next psychological mode, which is called gunny sacking. And in gunny sacking, you keep every remark that's ever been made since you first met in this big sack. And when she hollered Niggy Sob, I hollered Gunny Sack, and I dump it on her. And we go on, and we play that scenario. And it was the same script over and over again. So on this particular night, I said, can I use your telephone? And she said, yes. And I called the Irving Group of Alcoholics Anonymous, and I said, I want to talk to somebody about drinking. And that's exactly what I wanted to talk about. And they said, we're having a meeting. I said, what? I didn't even know there were people there. I've got this people, a live person. I don't care much for people. People never did anything good for me. I want you to know people lie. They'll tell your wife where you've been if you disappear for a week. 
People will fire you just because you don't show up. They will send you checks back from the bank just because you don't make deposits. I still got this thing after 20 years, Jack, about banks. They're all either drunk or crazy. Why else would they charge you $20 what they already know you ain't got when you write a bad check? Does that make sense to you? <laughs> and they send you these lies. They write you letters for a file notice. That's a lie. You don't call them, they'll send you another one. They always do. It's not final. I would told a little bank in Georgia one time, they sent me a final notice, and I called them and said, I appreciate that. Y'all going to bug me? You know, they sent me another one. You know. The world doesn't understand. So I get this people on the phone, and he said, we're having a meeting now. And I said, well, can you come if you've been drinking? And he said, well, most people have. And I said, okay. And so I went in, and I poured me out a big glass of Mad Dog Boosie Doozy. I was in my ethnic period at this time. Fine old cultural wine. I'm a connoisseur. You can tell the quality of a good wine by the number of threads on the screw cap. Right? I know people that drink old cheap wine with corks in it and stuff. So I went in. I had a big glass of Mad Dog Deucey Deucey. Faye said, what are you doing? I said, the man said, have a drink and come on down. You must understand about the disease of alcoholism is the alcoholic can hear anything he wants to hear regardless of what's been said. We know that. And so I left to go to my first AA meeting, and when I got there, it was gone. It didn't surprise me at all because it was not at all unusual in those days for me to go somewhere, call somebody, tell them I was coming, and when I get there, they'd be gone. Come to lost. <laughs> Actually, I went to the wrong address. I went to a real estate sales meeting. They looked like alcoholics. I asked them if they were alcoholics. <laughs> they got sales meeting. And I figured by this time, they'll feel better. I can go back home. I go back home. Everything I own is on the front porch. Wasn't any big deal. It all fit in one pillowcase. And I realized she was sicker than I thought she was, so I called alcohol. I mean, I, I asked if I could use her phone again. I called Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm going to get the machine. I'm going to talk to it. We're going to put a stop to all this crap because I don't know any other script. You know, I'm not an original screenwriter. I can't write these scripts. I just play the one that's handed to me, and it was handed to me when I developed the disease of alcoholism. You know, I didn't get an original script. I did the same thing you did. I did it in different ways. But I did the same thing you did. I was predictable. I drank what I could get my hands on to drink. I lied when it was necessary to lie. I stole when it was necessary to steal. I did what was necessary to live according to the script that I'd been handed when I developed the disease called alcoholism. Yeah. I was not a free thinker. I was not an independent soul. I was not an individual. I was an alcoholic living out the script that he had been handed when he became an alcoholic. And Faye was handing the script, playing out the script that she had been handed when she married an alcoholic. She didn't know she had a script. I didn't know I had a script. We had two children. We have a son and a daughter. And as soon as they were old enough to read, guess what the first thing they read? Their script. And they became actors, and we were actors, and we didn't live. We didn't have feelings, you know, the three rules of alcoholism. You don't talk, you don't trust, and you don't feel. And those were the things that we lived in our home. 
before we spoke, we had three people. Each one of us in our house had three people that we had to analyze to see what the reaction was going to be when we said what we said. And by the time you get through that much analysis, hell, you forgot what you meant to say to start with. I do that all the time. You know, we are habitual communicators when we're alcoholics. You ever notice people at an AA meeting, you walk in, you know, at the meeting, before the meeting? And there's five people sitting at this table, you know, and you walk in and one of them will be talking, the other four will just sit there and raptured at what they're saying, right? Bull. They're waiting for whoever's speaking to take a deep breath so they can jump in and say, well, they don't pay no attention. Somebody walks up and tells you a joke before they get halfway to the punchline, you're thinking of one funnier. We're habitual communicators. I watch husbands and wives in my office, and the husband will start to say something. The wife has already predetermined what he's going to say. Halfway through the statement, he changes his mind and says something else. She's already got the answer ready to the original statement, and then she can't understand why he doesn't understand what she's saying. You've all played that game. And so I go back home and... and uh, and, and say, I'm not going to do it, call the phone. I call back to AA. The people on the phone again. And they showed up at my house that night. Thank God they showed up at my house. Two men named James and John. I don't know where Paul and Peter were. I guess they were off that night. I live in Texas. Jesus could have come too, you know. Uh, so James and John come over to the house and they come in and they're the two dumbest guys you have ever seen in your life. One of them died last year with 35 years sobriety. The other one is still my sponsor today. He was my original sponsor. He quit after four months. I got another sponsor and, and he died last Christmas Day and then I went back to my original sponsor. The guy who made the 12-step call on me 20 years ago. And they came in and they said stupid things like, take it easy. You couldn't take it much easier than I was taking it. Then they said, let go and let God. Well, I didn't have a hold of anything. If I had, God certainly wouldn't have wanted it, you know. And then one of them said to me, do you think you could go one day without a drink? And I said, well, of course. And they said, well, when did you? And I said, well, I don't keep records on that sort of thing. But you know, as I stand here almost 20 years later, I still cannot remember how long it had been since I had spent a 24-hour period without a drink. And they introduced me to Alcoholics Anonymous. I could go into a long story about how I got there, but I won't. I just simply say that I, the next day I wound up in the Irving group of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I was introduced to the 12 steps right away. And if you're a newcomer here today, let me simply say to you, I don't know why you're making such a big deal out of those 12 steps. They just really aren't that complicated. I sat there that first day and I looked up there and it said we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become unmanageable and mine hadn't, so I went on to two. And it said we came to believe in a power greater than ourselves that wasn't one, so I went to three. 
And if you didn't do two, three, it's kind of superfluous. So I went to four, and it said make a moral inventory. I ain't know anything at all about that. So I went to five, and if you didn't do four, you got nothing to say in five. So I went to six, and it said entirely, and I didn't even read the rest of that. I went to seven, and it said humbly. <laughs> didn't know anything about that, so I went to eight. Really, an interesting thing about humility, by the way, it happened in our group recently. The guy was given a medal for being the most humble guy in our group, and he wore it back to the meeting the next day, and they took it away from him. Uh, so then I went to eight, and it said, make a list of all persons you'd harmed. I never had hurt anybody, so I went to nine. And if you didn't do eight, nine, just doesn't work very well. I went to ten, and it says continued, and I hadn't done anything to start with. You can't continue what you didn't start. So I went to eleven, and it said something about prayer, and I didn't know much about that. So I went on to twelve, and it said having had a spiritual awakening, I hadn't, so I was through. So that's how quick I did the steps the first time. Didn't work real well either. I might well add. So I'm sitting in there. I'm sitting in AA now. I'm going to dumb old discussion meetings. Sitting there waiting on my turn to speak, thinking about what I was going to say, and when my turn would come, I would say what I wanted to say, and then I'd spend the rest of the hour thinking about what I had said. Who are you laughing about? You do the same thing. <laughs> we all do that. Yeah? And I can say to you this morning, if all you get out of AA is what you bring down here, you're in big trouble because you don't have anything. You wouldn't be in the first place. And about that time, I had my first spiritual awakening. I looked up there and it said, we're powerless over alcohol. Well, I could kind of identify with that. And then a couple of days later, I had my second spiritual awakening. We had this guy come in and everybody jumped up and started kissing him and hugging him, blowing in his ear and running their fingers through his hair. And I thought, well, who in the world is this? So I asked the guy next to me, I said, who is that? And he said, that's old so-and-so. He's been out experimenting. And he came back. And I said, oh. What does that mean? So we got drunk and came back. I said, oh, I didn't know you could do that. And they said, sure, 50% of the people don't make it the first time. I said, really? What do you call that? And they had that beautiful word. I think it was one of the most beautiful words that I've ever heard in all my life. Slip. Don't you just love that word? Slip. Some big old dude, you know, go bear hunting with a switch, plays linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. I mean, you know, can personally, if we have 23 guys, and he'll disappear from your group for a week, and he'll come back and say, where you been? He said, I slipped. <laughs> there was a guy in our group, you know, was the CEO of a major corporation in this country, you know, $3 billion a year. Thousands of people work for him. Quit coming to meetings. I ran into him one night in a restaurant. I said, where in the world have you been? He said, I slid. We, we develop such beautiful words for what we do. You know that? Yeah. You know, nobody steals anymore. They misappropriate money. Yeah. Embezzle. Yeah. I mean, nobody goes out and gets laid anymore. They have affairs. <laughs> Sounds nice, don't it? When I was a kid, going, you know, <laughs> sir, <laughs> if I triggered anybody, could you wait till noon? <laughs> I remember when I was a kid, they said somebody was having an affair. I said, I want to go. 
so we do that. You know, we come into Alcoholics Anonymous, we bring those old habits with us, you know. So, you know I said, yeah, it sounds a lot better than I got drunk as hell laid on my back too straight up, you know. <laughs> so I did everything I guess that you could do wrong. I tried every way I could to get out of the program gracefully. You know, when I first came into Alcoholics Anonymous, they had an extra word in the preamble. It was called honest. The only requirement for membership is an honest desire to stop drinking. They took that out. They said, you know, we didn't know what it meant when we got here. We didn't, I mean, it was, it was a word that was totally foreign to us, and we just didn't understand. And I could identify with that. I didn't have any idea what honesty was. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to quit drinking. I didn't come to Alcoholics Anonymous to have my life changed. I came to Alcoholics Anonymous because I just didn't have anywhere to go. I didn't have a treatment center to go to. There was only two treatment centers in the city of Dallas in 1971, and I can assure you I could not have gotten into any, either one of them. We had a place called the Rehab Center that was run by cash donations, and I went down there for a couple of days, and they let me sit around just in case I would, you know, keep them dying. And so I came back all it's anonymous for all the wrong reasons, and I don't know anybody that ever came. I have never yet met anybody who came back all it's anonymous because their life was so good they just needed some relief. <laughs> have you ever met anybody in AA who came because their wife loved them so much they was hiding? Or their kids respected them so much they just wanted a place to get away for a few days. You know, we come because we're desperate. And I had this one favorite meeting. I was just biding my time. I know that today. I was sitting there and I was playing the game. I could, boy, I could spot these things. I'm a reader. I'm a reader by nature. I got four college degrees. You know, I have a bachelor's, two masters, and a PhD. I just couldn't decide what I wanted to be when I grew up. You know, no big deal. You know about that. I mean, a rectal thermometer's got 106 degrees. You know what they do with that? I mean, it's... it's you know, and when I got my PhD, I went to my sponsor. I said, hey, I've just been before the dissertation committee, and I've been approved for a doctorate. And he said, big deal. You know, he said, a PhD on an alcoholic's like the curly tail on a pig. Doesn't add any meat at all, just a little class. They weren't important. I'm not stupid. I mean, I could read, and I read this book, and I knew how to say the words, and I knew, you know. And I became a speaker right off the bat because I found out very early in Alcoholics Anonymous the anatomical fact that the eardrum and the jawbone don't work at the same time. And if you talk, you don't have to listen, and I don't want to hear what you have to say. And I resisted everything. I think people say, well... I just came to Alcoholics Anonymous, you know, and the light in the eyes of the people just turned me on, and I felt this warm glow, and I mean, God, not me, I hated your brains and guts. I mean, you said stupid stuff like, you know, it'll pass. Fake it till you make it. I don't like that term. I mean, I had been faking it all my life, and if I had kept faking it, I wouldn't have made it. I just want, that's just my opinion. Opinions are like noses, you know. Everybody's got one, we like to stick them in where they're not wanted. The only meeting that I really enjoyed was the Saturday night beginners meeting.
time and woke up in Montreal, Canada in my car. And the next big list, I've been married six times. Next guy said, I don't mean nothing. I've been married twice since lunch, you know, I mean, once to my sister. I mean, you know, just this goofy stuff. And I'm sitting there waiting on my turn. And we had this old timer who was sitting on the beginner's meeting. I hated his brains and guts. His name was Curly G. And he had this irritating habit of asking the group questions and looking straight at me. Did it every time, and I'd answer him. And he said, I'd like to ask all you folks a question. Have any of you ever been so drunk you didn't remember what you did? And he said, well, me. And I said, well, of course. <laughs> he said, you ever wake up in the bed with a 95-year-old woman with sores all over her body? And I said, no. And he said, how do you know? Well, it's not approved AA literature, but I read it anyway. It says, God works in mysterious ways. His wonders to perform. And that remark by Curly put me square into the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Because for the first time in 38 years of living, I realized that I had no idea what I'd done. That I was a 38-year-old man with a wife and two children. That I had lived almost half of what is a normal life for most people. And I had no idea what I'd done. And I walked out of that meeting that afternoon, that Saturday afternoon, and I went to see my sponsor. And I have to tell you about Al. Al died last Christmas a year ago on Christmas Day. And I guess I loved him. I know I loved him as much as my own father. And he just saw his dirt. He never, ever told me what a good job I was doing in AA. He died without telling me that. The kindest thing he ever said was, I just wonder sometime if you're going to make it. <laughs> and that was about six months before he died. <laughs> you see, the way I got out... You have to remember, this was almost 20 years ago. We don't hold raffles in those days for sponsors. <laughs> you didn't buy 15 tickets and then they have a drawing on Saturday night to see who you get for your sponsor. <laughs> Al came out to me and he said, my name's Al Z, I'm your sponsor. I said, I haven't chosen a sponsor yet. He said, yeah, you have, and I'm him. I said, I thought you got to choose your own sponsor. He said, you do, you did, and I'm him. I said, I'm not sure I'm ready for sponsorship yet. He said, me either, but nevertheless, I'm your sponsor. And he looked at me and he said, you don't understand, do you? And I said, no, sir, I don't. He said, we drew straws. I lost. <laughs> In September 1971, the New of Alcoholics Anonymous. They had a steering committee meeting. And the topic of the meeting was whether or not they were going to allow me to continue to come. It was decided that if they didn't, I probably would die. 
But if they did, somebody would have to take charge of me because I was too disruptive at the meeting. And they actually did draw straws. And now I got the short straw. And he became my best friend. He became my, my, my spiritual leader. And God, I don't know of anybody in the world any less unspiritual than that. I had a little trick that I used in those days when things didn't work for me. I went home went to bed. I spent a lot of time in bed. They had good insurance. Sometimes I'd just go to the hospital. I was in the hospital eight times my first year in AA. Of course, in those days, they were a little more lenient on that. And I said, you know, I'd go, and, you know, you stay two or three days and they find out. They get a lot of sympathy and care. Occasionally, shot a demoral if you can take it. I couldn't pay very sure of that when I was admitted. So I went to see Al on this Saturday afternoon, and I said, I was standing on the front porch crying. He said, what's the matter? And I said, I just found out a terrible thing. And he said, what's that? I said, I just found out I don't know what I've done. He said, what do you mean? I said, I don't know what I've done. I have no idea what I've done. And he said, none of us do. And I said, to heck with the rest of you. I'm talking about me. And I looked at me that day, and he said, it just might be that you're ready to take certain steps. And he didn't read a book. He didn't say, come back next Tuesday. He said, come in. And we began a program that day that has lasted for me up until this morning. And that program is based on the 12 suggested steps of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, I want you to know that in my opinion, the only reason that the word suggested is in there is because the people who wrote the book were alcoholic and they knew if they had said we had to, we would have proved we would have died proving we didn't. But the word suggested has no meaning whatsoever there. Because if you want to stay sober, you've got to do this. If you want any peace of mind or any serenity, if you want any change in your life, and I've got to tell you, nothing changes till something changes. And if you come to Alcoholics Anonymous and you go to meetings and your life is exactly the way it was before you came, don't expect to stay around very long because you won't. I grew up outside Fort Benning, Georgia, home of the paratrooper school. And they used to tell the program the story about the, the paratroopers getting ready to make their first jump. And the guy was explaining the parachute, and he said, this is the backpack, and this is the chest pack, and this is the seat harness, and this thing on the front is the suggested ripcord. <laughs> we suggest when you jump out of the airplane, you pull it. You do not have to if you don't want to. But the fall is your responsibility. And I say the same thing to you this morning, that those steps are called suggested, and you don't have to take them if you don't want to, but if you don't, the fall is your responsibility. And we began a program that morning, that night, that has worked up until today. And I said, he taught me that the two tools of every alcoholic are rationalization and justification, that as long as we can rationalize away what we've done and justify what we're about to do, we'll continue to do it. He taught me there were three meanings to AA. There's Alcoholics Anonymous, Absolute Abstinence, but the most important of all was admitted and accepted that we truly are powerless over alcohol. I can't drink alcohol and control what I do. I love what you said last night about jump up in there and stay there. I'm a little more basic than that man. You know? 
I'm so basic I've been almost run out of the Baptist church a couple of times. If you believe you can put chemicals in your body, and I don't care what you call them, but if you believe you can drink alcohol and control what it does, I challenge you. Go down to the drugstore and buy you a four-ounce bottle of castor oil and drink it. And then make up your mind what you're going to do. <laughs> I've never known anybody to pass the test yet. Pretty basic. The same thing is true. You can do it. Rationalize and justify. The way that Al was a great teacher by illustration. And one Sunday morning we were in a meeting in Arlington, Texas, and <laughs> a lady called Al, most of me pick up the extension. A woman on the phone, she said, I'm drunk. <laughs> he said, well, I'm sorry to hear that. She said, well, it's not my fault, but we all knew that. She said, it's the peanut butter. He said, I don't understand. You got drunk on peanut butter? She said, no, we didn't have any peanut butter. My husband came home and threw a fit, and I went down to the 7-Eleven and bought two six-packs and drank all 12 of them. He said, wouldn't it have been simpler to have got a jar of peanut butter? And she said, the heck with him. I don't care if he never gets any more peanut butter. <laughs> and we laugh about that, but I challenge you. How many times have you deliberately started a fight so you could slam the door and go get drunk? How many people have you ever met in Alcoholics Anonymous who have ever said to somebody else, I think I'll go screw my head up for a week? I'm going to run over a neighbor's kid or two on the way out of the neighborhood. I'll probably sleep with two or four people while I'm gone. I'm going to wind up in jail a time or two. I'll be in a fist fight. I'll steal a little money. But don't worry, honey, I'll be back. <laughs> you never heard that in your life. We must rationalize and justify what we're about to do. And then I said, you know, we must deal with our insanity. I love that. I had no problem whatsoever with that because when they told me I was insane, it explained a whole lot to me. I had wondered for 38 years why I was so different. Yeah. Why are things always different for me? Why do I see things different? You know, nothing was the same for me as it was for you. And I know today that insanity is real simple. It's just doing the same thing the same way over and over again, hoping to get a different result. I knew I was crazy. I just never had had it defined for me. I can remember saying to Faye, don't let the neighbors know I've been drinking. <laughs> and she'd say, how much I explain you being naked out in the yard? <laughs> and I'd say, tell them I'm sick. I mean, you know, we all have a psychiatrist there. If they took me to a psychiatrist, I know we're good. He looked at me and he said, son? I said, yes, sir. He said, I'm going to give you some pills. I said, you are? <laughs> he said, uh-huh. I love pills. I love big pills, little pills, white pills, red pills, round pills, round pills, square. I just love pills. That when I was drinking, when I came to your house, first place I go to your bathroom. I want to look in your medicine cabinet. I've had enough mind all in my life. I wouldn't have a cramp. I'd be 150 years old. I mean, I never will forget the first time I found the little plastic thing with the dates on it. I mean, I took the 24th, 25th, and 26th, you know. I I have a friend who's a Jesuit priest up in Ottawa, Canada. He said, Ray, did you know that you may be responsible for getting some woman pregnant you never even met? <laughs> I love pills. 
And he said, I'm going to give you these pills. I said, what do they do, Doc? He said, if you drink them, they make you deathly sick. I said, I already get deathly sick when I drink. <laughs> he said, you know you're going to get deathly sick and you're drinking well? I said, yes, sir. He said, I don't understand that. I said, me either. <laughs> you know, he gave me some pills, and you know what? <laughs> I got deathly sick. I wound up in intensive care. And I probably would have stayed longer, but I drank the alcohol out of the thermometer glass and they discharged me. But I never took any more of those pills. I wasn't stupid. <laughs> so when they came to me and they said, you know, that we must believe in a power greater than ourselves, do you know how that really happened? There was no flash of light, no burning bush. I mean, nothing miraculous happened. I didn't sit up in the middle of the night and hear boy. Well, I did, but that was it. Uh, different voices. Stupid psychiatrists would say, are the voices inside your head or outside? I said, I don't know. I'm scared of those I mean, <laughs> I walked down the hall of the hospital the other day where I work. You know, we were giving a guy an MMPI exam by tape because he couldn't read. And we had him in this little glass enclosed room. And he had the tape up full of glass. And everybody walked by was looking to see where the voices were coming from. And this one guy was sitting there wasn't moving at all. <laughs> I touched the doctor I work with. I said, hey, look over there. I said, you know what? That's perfectly normal for this guy. You know, he just knows those voices are not real. You know, so, and that's kind of the way we were. You know. but, but the way I came to believe was simply this. is one night I was sitting in the urban group and I looked around at some of those old guys that had been there for 15 or 20 years. And we had some bad dudes in those days. I mean, you know, we had some guys that... that well, they weren't low bottom, but they'd take their knives off, I mean, their socks off with a petty knife, you know. I mean, th these guys were, they had been down the road. And I began to look, and I thought, here's old Paul sitting over here, you know, and, and, and here's Bill, and he'd sit over there, and, and Bill once had traveled all the way across country on a Cushman motor scooter with a hooker and a ladder, and I don't mean a fire truck either, you know. And he and this hooker, he would paint signs, and she would do whatever it was she did, and, and what sobered him up is he had a blowout on his motor scooter, and it almost killed them both, you know. And I mean, that made perfect sense to me. You know, that sounds weird to you, but that made perfect sense to me. Well, I could just say, how exciting, you know. Your own hooker and your own ladder and your own Christian motor scooter and you can paint signs, you've got to trade. My God, what else would you want in life? You know? And I decided, and, then, but I, and here's Bill, seven years sober. You know, and here's Paul G, and he's sitting over here, you know, and, and one day the, the, the Dallas police and the Irving police took turns throwing him across the city limits. He was an Indian out of Oklahoma, and he was mean. I mean, Paul was mean. And when they would call, it, always sent four squad cars, two cops to each car to get Paul. And it took that many, you know. And here he is, 11 years sober. And that's when I came to believe. I didn't come to believe in a book. I didn't come to believe in an ideology. I came to believe in the evidence of what I could see in people like you. I could come here, you know, and three, three weeks ago I was up in Pennsylvania and I, I was in the middle of the woods up in Cook Forest, Pennsylvania with a fifth chapter group. I hid my tie. <laughs> I hid it under some rocks so they wouldn't find it. Yeah. And I never went to the neatest guys I ever met in my life. I got my own bandana now. I'm going to walk to church on Sunday. Well, that ought to do it, ought to. 
but these people have the disease that I have, and we grew up together. And then we came to step three, and I went to Al. I said, Al, I can't do that. That's about God. Let's just move on. He said, well, you're not going anywhere else till you do three. The success of the rest of your program depends upon your willingness to accept step three. I said, well, tell me about God. He said, I can't. It's God as you understand Him. I said, well, tell me about God as you understand Him. He said, no way. You tell me about God, Ray. And you know, as we begin to unravel this thing, I realized that my basic problem was that all my life I had been told by other people what I had to believe in order for God to love me. That I had to live up to your ideals before God would love me. And you know, I couldn't do that and I felt like a failure. And then as I got older, I realized that the people who were telling me what to do so God would love me weren't doing what they told me to do. And then I got confused. An old man down in Lake Providence, Louisiana. And I stole this. Everything you heard from me today, I stole. I'm not original. I never had an original thought since the first day I walked through AA. All my original thoughts kept me drunk for 17 years. Why would I depend on them? A little guy named Tom O.S. Lake Providence. Taught me about step three. And I look back, and it was the same way with me and Faye. You know, I met Faye in San Diego, California in 1955. And Faye looked at me that day, and she said, If you want what I've got and are willing to go to any lengths to get it, you must take certain steps. (laughs) Some of these I bought. But my efforts were nil until I let go, absolutely. (laughs) Now, we laugh about that, but I have to tell you something. I met Faye in February 1955 at the Naval Hospital in San Diego, California. In May 28, 1955, we were married in the Southern Baptist Church up on El Cajon Boulevard in San Diego. And I thought I understood her. And she thought she understood me. We just celebrated our 36th wedding anniversary. And she didn't get me anything. And I want you all to know that. <laughs> I haven't got it either. But do you think that if I didn't understand Faye Vowell any more today than I did on, in February 1955, we'd still be married? And do you think that if we stay married 15 or 20 or 30 more years, that I won't understand her a whole lot better down the line than I do today? Because if we want to stay married, I'd have to. And do you think that if she had understood me that day the way she understands me today, we would have ever gotten married? <laughs> Probably not. And so that was exactly what Tom O.S. explained to me that in Lake Providence that day. He said, Ray, it's God as you understand Him today. And it doesn't have to be deep, and you don't have to be a theologian. I am. I have a master's degree in theology today, but I can tell you right now, that's not how I came to understand God. I came to understand God by listening to people like you in groups like this. 
And I have an understanding that is much deeper today than it was in 1971, and I pray to God that it will be deeper tomorrow than it is today, because you see, that's the spirituality of the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not religious. I've got all that stuff separated now. I know today what it is. Religion is man's, trying to, man's way of trying to impress other men with how good he is. That's okay if they want to do that. But spirituality is just being humble enough to let God show you how good he is. I don't have any problems with that. I teach in a seminary. Teach in graduate school. <laughs> I know now why it's graduate school. It pays more. One of my students came up to me one day and said, Dr. Bauer, can you, uh, can you give me your philosophy of religion? I've been waiting for years when somebody asked me. I said, uh-huh. He got out his notebook and his pen and he thought he was going to get some real, real deep diatribe, you know. And I said, it won't take but a second. See, I know today that God will give you what you need when you need it just as soon as you're capable of taking care of it. And it's that simple. Can you imagine anything in the world any worse than an alcoholic having everything he needs? Or wants, rather. We get what we need, but God, what you want? And I could go on and on today, but I know you're all anxious to get home. I, I just advise you to get your, get your sponsor and do those steps with him, because I want to take a few minutes as we close and tell you what's happened. We went through these 12 steps. We worked these steps all the way through. And we did them by the book. I didn't know how to do them any other way. Yeah. I said, read the book. I went down one day, I said, well, I don't have any friends. He said, want to be a friend, you got to be a friend. You want to have a friend, you got to be a friend. Go to chapter 11 and read what it says there and answer those questions. I never had read chapter 11. I never had read chapter 5 all the way through. I read the stories. I like those. They've even got it now in Texas. I don't know if you've got it out here. You can buy it separated now. You can get a different book with the stories in it. Don't you just love that? Don't you just see a newcomer now that can get a book that hasn't got nothing but the stories in it? I just think that's wonderful. Now, that ought to perpetuate our program for another 150 years. <laughs> we finished working those steps the first time. And I did inventories, and I made amends, and I went to meetings, and I wrote, and I wrote, and I wrote. And one Saturday afternoon, I was sitting in the group, they were setting up the tables for bingo, and that's gambling, and I don't believe in that, because we don't do it. And after bingo, they were going to take the tables down and have a dance. We don't believe in that. We don't do it. But to make matters worse, those kids were laughing at my program. They were having a good time. And they were not taking my program seriously. And it made me furious. And I went to see Al to help me, get him to help me straighten them out. <laughs> Wrong. And I said, I want to ask you one thing. I said, why are these people all laughing and cutting up? Don't they know how serious this is? He said, maybe they don't. 
We had a guy went through our group one time, like a dose of Epsom salts. Man, he ripped everybody off. And I said, how can that guy be an alcoholic? I mean, you know, he taught, this guy had one of the best pitches I ever heard in my life. You know? I said, how can he get up there and talk such good AA and be such a crook? And I said, maybe he's not alcoholic. I said, what do you mean? He said, I said, well, you know, look at what he says. He said, yeah, but look at what he does. And then he looked, I said, I want to know one thing, Al. When is something good going to happen to me? And he looked at me and he said, well, Red, maybe you're just one of those people good things don't ever happen to. <laughs> I believe that. And Al looked at me that day and he said, Red, I want to ask you something. Where do you live? I said, well, I live over in Northwest Park. He said, huh. Who do you live with? I said, well, my wife, my daughter. He said, huh. How's your daughter, Ray? I said, well, God, Alice and many teenagers hanging around our house. Sometimes I have to go to the service station to use the bathroom. <laughs> he said, huh. Where do you sleep? I said, well, I sleep in the master bedroom in the king-side bed with my wife. He said, huh. How are things at work, Ray? I said, well, I've been promoted. I'm head of the department now. You know that. He said, huh. How'd you get down here today? I said, in my new car. He looked at me and he said, you know, I hope you hang around AA long enough for something good to happen to you. <laughs> and I walked out of Al's office that day and I went down to a little park in Irving and I sat under a pecan tree and I cried for about three hours. Because I realized for the first time in my life just how dumb and stupid I really was. And I thought back to the night they came and got me. And when they carried me to the meeting, my little boy went to the phone booth on the corner and he took the change out of his pocket. And he called his grandmother in Kentucky and when she answered the phone, all he could say was, Mom, my daddy don't drink no more. I thought about the night that he graduated from high school, and he graduated in Irving Stadium where the Cowboys play, and there were a couple of thousand people there that night who had expected for four years to be there, and I was there because I had been invited by my son, who was no longer ashamed of his father. And after the graduation, they came up and my son brought his friends up to where I was and he said, this is my daddy and we're proud of him. And this is the little boy that used to be so afraid of his father that he would hide in the shrubbery until I'd pass out at night because he was afraid to come in the house. I thought about the afternoon that my wife invited me to the voice recital and I didn't really want to go and she insisted and when we got there it was my daughter. My daughter's a coloratura soprano, and she sang that afternoon in five languages, and I cried through the whole concert because I didn't even know she could sing. I could go on and on telling you about things, but 11 years ago, I, I went to Faye, and I said, Faye, I'd like to go back to school. I want to complete my doctorate. I was feeling, I was feeling a real call to get in a full-time counseling situation, and and i got to tell you, if you're going to be a counselor, you really need to prepare to do that. I don't think being an alcoholic prepares you to be a counselor any more than having your appendix out prepares you to be a surgeon. 
I really felt like that I needed some more training, and, and so I, I said to Faye, I'd like to go back to school. She said, why don't you? And I said, I'd be 50 years old before I could graduate. And she said, in four years, you're going to be 50 either way. <laughs> and so I re-enrolled in school and was accepted into a doctoral program. And on January the 2nd, 1984, I turned 50. On May the 14th, 1984, I graduated summa cum laude with a Ph.D. in Christian counseling. And on October the 15th, 1984, our daughter presented us with the most perfect, most intelligent, most beautiful little red-headed grand, unless it's the two that have been born since. The one confusion in my life today is how the boy that was not good enough to marry my daughter could father such perfect children. I, it's just, it keeps me all messed up. That little boy was about three years old. He had never spent the night away from his parents. Faye and I were attending the School of Prophets in Dallas, and we had a suite of rooms in one of the hotels, and my daughter came to me and she said, Daddy, how would you like to take Ryan and keep him all night? And I said, you'd let me do that? And she said, yes, sir, I would. And so I went to Walmart and bought $40 worth of little red trucks. And I didn't want to spoil him, I didn't. And we were sitting up in this suite of rooms, and that little boy was playing with his trucks. And he'd take the trucks down, and he'd come climb up in my lap, and he'd put his arms around my neck, and he'd say, Papa, I love you. And then he'd be down, and he'd be gone. And in a few minutes, he'd take the trucks down, and he'd come back, and he'd, he'd climb back in my lap, and he'd put his arms around my neck, and he'd say, Papa, I love you. And again, I cried. Not because the little boy said, I love you, because little boys do that with their grandparents. It was because I had been trusted by my daughter, who used to be so afraid of her father that she would lock herself in the bathroom and sleep in the bathtub with the most precious possession she had, her child. And I knew that not only am I recovering and... Not only am I forgiven, but I've been restored to the place where I would want to be if I had every choice in the world. And then three years later, she gave birth to another little red-headed boy, and he's mine. He's mine. Daniel's mine. He looks like a, a linebacker for the Green Bay Packers. He's about this tall, about that wide, and he just, he, you can just slam him against the wall, you know, and everything. He did, he did, you know. The little one, the first one was a little player, but this one, boy, you can bounce him around, play, you can just do anything, you know. And I thought, boy, this is great. Six weeks ago, my son-in-law called me and he said, we're on the way to the hospital. And I had a trip planned to Oklahoma. And I said, well, maybe I better call. And he said, no. Kitty said, go on and do whatever you needed to do. It would be all right. They called me on my mobile phone between Dallas and Oklahoma said, you, you have a granddaughter. And I thought, boy, this is great. This just uh, Finally, she did what I told her. <laughs> and so I'm up in Oklahoma, and I'm getting ready to go to the meeting that night. And 
I called Faye to check on him. And she said, you got a beautiful little, little granddaughter. She said, she's just perfect. And she said, guess what her name is? Jacqueline Ray. And when I came back on Sunday, I drove all, just took off home as soon as I could after the meeting. And I went to the hospital and I said, Kitty, why didn't you name the little boy Ray? She said, Daddy, I've had that name picked out since my first pregnancy. But in order for it to work, it had to be on a little girl. Because I know what a special place we have with each other. I could spend the rest of the day telling you about things that have happened to us as a result of this problem. Or we have some bad days. I know you'll find it hard to believe that I'm not always perfect. <laughs> and some days I just refuse to have a good day. But I have never, ever in my almost 20 years of experience found the program to fail in any way, shape, form, or fashion. And it works just as good as I will allow it to. I'm no expert in this program. Sober is as high as you get. You get higher than that, you start over. And I've had to reduce... I've had to reduce this thing to its lowest common denominator over and over and over again because, you see, when I become a guru, the program begins to go sour. And when I began to put my ideas intermingled with the ideas of the founders of the program, somehow their program doesn't work well anymore. So I come back to its lowest common denominator. And every day I remind myself that, number one, I know which drink makes me drunk. It's the first one. And number two, I know who has the choice of whether or not I take that drink with God's help and yours. That's me. And I thank God for you letting me.